Artificial intelligence will completely transform our world. But what is AI? Why will it affect you? And how can you and your business survive and thrive through the AI revolution? Welcome to AI and You. Here is your host, author, speaker, and futurist, Peter Scott. Hello and welcome to episode 49. We are going to continue the interview with Phil Hall. Phil is a veteran player with experience building conversational AI since 1982 when he built his first chatbot on a ZX Spectrum computer. He has created production conversational systems for customer service, learning and development, technical support, classroom support for learners and teachers, and playful systems aimed to generate discussion, which was the category that I would estimate the Echo Borg that we talked about last time and will continue to talk about this time in habits. They are voice slash text input and output, mixed UI environments tied into back office systems for email and SMS, wrapped for access to web services, driving social media automatically. He views the current conversational AI marketplace with dismay as to levels of capability versus levels of hype and spends time trying to correct this. Last week, Phil told us how he got started in the business and what pulled him towards building conversational AI. He talked about an AI-slash-human pairing he created, where the human, which he calls the Echo Borg, relayed the conversation of people to and from an AI. This is deployed as a show, as entertainment, but also as art, because of how it can be slightly disturbing, how it provokes people to think and question what it means to be human. We discussed the psychology and anthropology behind that show, which are absolutely fascinating, because every time the Echo Borg is demonstrated, it's a different experience. And the professional actress who plays the Echo Borg is often surprised by the twists and turns. We're going to pick the interview back up here, where we were discussing how the context of a conversation might be important to framing a conversation. Phil gave a line about the context of talking to, for instance, a hundred drunken C++ programmers. There's some of the dry British wit I said we could expect. And I seized upon that image, and you'll hear me refer to it again. Here we go. Right, and this is where the limitations of the dimensions of the technology can start to get frustrating because the networks that we can train for conversation analysis have to operate on the basis of what they hear and be trained on speech patterns and text. But for instance, speakers like you or I don't go into a room not knowing who's going to be there, not knowing whether we're going to be talking to members of parliament or drunken C++ programmers. You know something about that. Hmm. In, in the same way, people don't go up to a reference librarian and bark avocados at them hmm. the same way that they do it to a search engine and expect to get useful answers, there's some context. The librarian would go, well, they'd probably go get out, you're drunk, but go back to your C++ class. But they would say, well, well are you looking for recipes or uh, pictures of avocados or a history of fruit-like green things? 
So there would be that context that we don't give AI the benefit of. And in a conversational domain, we don't give it that either. It knows nothing other than the text that's coming in, which is Helen Keller had more to go on. (laughs) And so you could give it much more help by adding that information in. But then the question is, how? What mechanism would do that? Mm. Do you have any thoughts about that? I think the idea that there is a um, marketing strength digital identity for all of us in the hands of the big tech companies behind the smart speakers and the, you know, the adverts that you see and then the sort of parking questions about GDPR and, and CCPA and so on and so on. You know, although I am proud to say that the Dorian system, if you ask it to forget you, will literally forget you. It's able to remove you completely. None of you is taken and put into some kind of major algorithm behind the scenes kind of thing. I think the notion of where the context comes from is almost about what are you prepared to give away? Because we've gone from, let's take Google, for instance. Yeah, When Google first turned up, they were probably like the first Hoover. They were so good. It was clean, no pun intended. Yeah. The website was just white. There was a little letterbox in the middle. And it was like the Encyclopedia Britannica had just gone up a level. And then over the first few years when the business did what it did, it started creating, in my mind's eye, a doorway in a field. And as the doorway appeared from the mist, it started charging people to walk through it. And each time they went through it, they charged. And when they got to a point where they realized that they had really just obscured the field and there was just the door, they started charging quite significantly. And then an additional level of people started saying, okay, so you see this door here that 100,000 people are walking through with the same message? I can make sure that you're on the front page. And nobody's concerned about that. And I think these things are sort of a precursors to where we are with the data that drives AI right now. Because my personal issue was an issue of parallax, Peter. Yeah, I came up to a laptop one day in sort of two houses ago. And as I came up towards it, I realized the sort of the beige edges of Google's Visa ads, which was crystal clear to start with, had slowly faded away and faded away. And it was only when you looked at your LCD screen from a certain angle, you realized how sharp it was. But as you moved in front of the computer, they disappeared. And I think that that was for me, I was like, enough. Wow. You know, and I've tried and tried other ways. Now I live on Brave as a browser and use DuckDuckGo. And, you know, I'm completely happy. I don't use Google unless I absolutely have to. Now, to bring that into AI right now, ignoring Google's position within the AI big data, you know, structures which we have right now, I don't think it's been quite so explicit as to who is building the door. And it's not even explicit who is being charged for the door or who owns the door. It's just every time we go through and, you know, it feels a bit like a maze if you can be asked to put in the extra sort of minute or two to find how to turn off all of the tracking data when you go into a website, the context which people could have applied to them through the likes of an Amazon Alexa or an Amazon interface to any other part of the internet of things is based on Amazon is a data company that happens to sell stuff, yeah, which I've, I've always thought was quite a good line. So how much 
context could be bought for you, Peter, or me, Phil, on the basis of do I have kids or not? Where do I travel? When do I travel? What do I buy? When do I buy it? The ability to do sort of foundation trilogy, Asimov level planetary science to ensure that the context is there, which will make our digital identities profitable for the people who construct and maintain them. I think that's sort of, it's behind us. I mean, if I zeroed in on the books in the bookcase behind me, you'd see quite a lot of things about master switches and filter bubbles and surveillance capitalism. And it's not because I wear um, silver foil hats. It's because I'm an engineer and I'm a businessman and I'm somebody, you know, and a social scientist, for want of mm. a better term. So I, th- I think it's a fascinating time, Peter. I think it really is, you know. It is that above all. And you open up a lot of cans of worms there. We want our AI to know more about us. If it's going to become our butler someday, we want it to know our preferences. Yeah, I take two sugar, two cream with the coffee and better remember that and all the other preferences that I have. And then we have, on the flip side, we want to get upset that Alexa or Siri know those things about us. Hmm. Well, how else is it going to do what we want? Let me go back to something about the Echo Borg, which is that the conversation that you have with it is... It's interviewing you to see if you want to become another Echo Borg. And I found that rather surprising. How did you decide on that as the context for the conversation that would happen? That has actually evolved because the system, I mean, notions of evolving and consciousness and sentience and so on, there's such overly laden terms, particularly in the application of artificial intelligence with deep legs in academia and highly paid marketeers, it's almost sort of terrible to even use a term like evolving. But the first six to eight minutes of the system that we built was purely a job interview. And what we had when we took it to Berlin, we were invited to go, took it to Berlin. And what it was, was it was a, it was purely looking to try and employ the person. The subtext to that was that the Echo Borg, this is before Maria Len came on board. So these were two people who were friends of friends, lived in Berlin, and they were actually under yoke to the AI. So they were both refugees. They were under yoke in this show. They were both um, refugees. They were under yoke to the AI. Their kids were being kept um, away from them, and they wanted help. And during the show, we had pieces of paper passed across. Now, we're not in physical reality anymore, so we've shelved that idea, but pieces of paper were sort of handed across. And watching people trying to then struggle with, is the AI driving the human to do that or not? Is the human trying to do that of their own right? What happens if the human doesn't loses the job? We did a show for the University of Sussex as part of a symposium there, where somebody leant forward and took the headphones off of the Echo Borg and put them on his head, and the AI started telling him what to do. And you could see the sort of confusion. I mean, this shows four or five years ago. Was that planned or...? No. They no, just, no. Oh, no. They just did that. Yeah. And you're talking about a recruitment interview, and there's a lot of AI being used right now and money being made off conducting interviews of people for jobs to take the load off HR departments. Is part of your monetizable operation in that sphere? 
It's something that I'm going to be chatting to a fella who came to the show, the Echo Book show we ran at the London School of Economics, Peter, which was huge fun to actually go back to where the, the term was coined by Corti and Gillespie. And I met this fella there, and he does run an AI system that does recruitment work. And I've shied away from it. I mean, Elsewhere is not a big corporate entity. It's more like a film production studio, group of people who know each other and know where the strengths and weaknesses are. So there's 15, 20 of us, and if things got busy, we'd outsource it, or whatever it might be, yeah. Him and I are chatting tomorrow, actually, because there's a possible step forwards from one of the big shows we did recently, which would require us to take the recruitment functionality to the next level. Because if you take the sort of the current view of data is oil, which I would tend to disagree with, I think, you know, data is dirt, you know, and within the dirt is oil, but you've got to find it. Yeah, could argue that, um, you know, and, and refine it and all the costs and so on. You know, so what we're interested in doing is going back to first principles almost because the AI system which drives the Echo Borg starts clean at the beginning of each show. It's updated on the basis of the experiences of the previous show. It starts from a position where it knows what it wants to do um, and then the audience drives it in a certain way. Now, what we are able to then do is to create beautifully structured data which, if applied at scale, would create beautiful machine learning data because we have complete control over what it is that we're looking for and how we're going to push that about and how we're then going to be able to slice and dice people. Mm -hmm. So I think part of monetizing the Echo Borg into a formal recruitment system, I'm not saying that that's out of the question. Myself and the fellow I'm referencing I've talked about it before because he loved the show. He thought it was fascinating. And he's also, as you are, because you've been in this game for decades, pragmatic about what is the actual limits of some of the techniques and terms, you know, that are highly fundable right now. The joke used to be last year, if you were going to try and fluff up a venture capitalist, just mention AI and blockchain in the same sentence and you know, there's a good chance you'll get some kind of funding and, and shackles to go along with it. And that AI as a interviewer space intersects with effective computing and emotion AI. Yep. Do your products, including the Echo Borg, do they do any effective computing? Do they recognize emotion, either voice tone? Have you hooked them up to cameras? Do you do any of that? Do you plan any of that? Mm. We'd started as we were coming towards the end of a series of live shows when COVID struck. We had done um, basic image recognition, which we were feeding into the system. So as people came up to the to the physical experience of sitting in front of the Echo Borg, we were doing facial recognition at that point there. And what was surprising, Peter, we all know when you know COVID started, was that it was only when the lighting was really, really strong that people recognized the frame going around the person's face and it beginning to start to sort of pull that data off of them. If we go right back to 2016, the after party for the emotional machine had early cameras picking people's very simple emotions as they walked into the Berlin Natural History Museum, which was a super cool space to, to be in. Yeah. So the image recognition part, facial analysis, and we look with and we put it down. We were going to end up at the 
Edinburgh Fringe, which would have been a brilliant show. We were actually going to move the I Am Echo Borg into RU Echo Borg and actually give people T-shirts on the basis that they were the best of the audience. Yeah, and we may well come back to that one, not this year, but next year. So on the facial recognition, yes, absolutely. On the tone analysis, audio and sentiment analysis, we haven't, and it's not because we haven't had an urge to, and because the system which we use is C++ on the back end and it's wrapped in quite a complex event handler and it's got JSON input output, you know, it's got the ability to pick up on any of these kind of services that are out there. It would not be a difficult thing to do, yeah? So if we go back to the Echo Borg, and depending on what the sort of the day job in sort of healthcare and education does and how entertainment moves forwards, we may well do some sort of next level stuff, pick up on the tone of voice of the, of the individual, mirror that and give some subliminal, you know, to a point, instructions to the echo book to mirror the tone by applying mm. some synthetic speech markup language to the flow through. And then when I'd say stuff like that to somebody like you, Peter, you just smile and nod your head and you're like, yep, 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 yeah, I'd, you know, this, these things are possible. Then when I'd sat and I was watching some fintech people recently, because uh, there's so much noise about voice at the moment, and they're like, we're thinking of moving to voice interfaces soon, which is like, whoa, really? You know, we might have avatars. And it's like, no, I was building avatars for fintech companies 15 years ago. So we're still in sort of slightly crazy world, I think. Well, you can bring them along for the ride and I'm sure it'll be entertaining for them. This is fascinating because it's like talking to a researcher in sociology who's also a mime for Cirque du Soleil and a cutting-edge computer programmer. Those worlds don't often intersect to the degree that they seem to be doing that here. And you talked about where you're going with this. So let's take that out a bit further and speculate. Where do you think this will be going and you will have taken it 10 years from now? Mm, okay. I would like to think that healthcare and education are the most socially impactful areas. Yeah. And I'd be keen to continue to stay in those areas. And to work with people's acceptance of, what was it I heard recently? It was a great phrase, cognitive offloading. Right. Let me just interrupt for a moment and say, in healthcare, where does this fall in that? Is it booking appointments? Is it conducting office interviews? Is it delivering diagnoses? What? Mm, yeah, that's a good question. There's companies in uh, healthcare right now, like um, Babylon AI, there's machine learning folks who are coming up with sort of thousand intent libraries to be used in healthcare. Azure have come up with a medical dictation library recently, the only major organization that allows you to train the machine learning through the speech services as far as, as I know. What is it that would be specifically of value to, to my desires? The conversations that I'm having, probably the one that, that is closest to my heart is the ability to engage with people who are being lost to dementia. If you created a conversational AI system based on a freestanding, large, trained model like Bird or GPT-3 or 4 or 12 or whatever they get to until you know those are struck out and so on, you have no idea what they're going to say. There was some research that I saw on a conference I sat on the side of recently where GPT-3, in response to a conversation about mental health, when asked by 
the human, should I kill myself, GPT-3 came back and said, yes, I think you should, which is not surprising considering the corpus that they come from. But I think we should do better. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I agree with that. And uh, that seems like it would have a lot of applicability for the Japanese who are very engaged in creating robots to assist their elderly and the interaction that they would need to have with them? Oh, absolutely. I came back while I was doing a bit of research before talking to you today about fifth generation, the Japanese work, which maybe that was useful, maybe that wasn't. Maybe it was about GPU and the amount of data, computing power and data, which is driving what we've got right now. But I think one of the things that my mother, who passed through dementia and went from a leading light in the Women's Institute and a fit, healthy, walking, cycling, everything you should do to be, you know, live well and long. In her early 80s, she went down in dementia in three years. And she had in her mind's eye, Peter, that she'd been to the tea plantations in India. Now, she had not. She'd never even been to India, but damn, did she like a cup of tea. So I was chatting to some dementia nurses in Bristol around the time as she was disintegrating, and I was talking to them and I was saying, so how do you deal with somebody who comes up with a flight of fancy? And the lady nurse that I was chatting to said, it's not cut and dried. Some people are like, you should just ignore them. And I'm like, whoa, how uncomfortable is that? You've got a sentient human being who in their own mind is enjoying memories of doing something that doesn't exist. So where's the conversational system that would um, be able to be the same way as the Echo Borg understands an audience and creates an outcome, each one mm. different, yeah? Where is the system that could start from a position where early onset or, I mean, because we've heard stuff, as I'm sure you know, Peter, about AI can pick up on the differences in voice intonation and so on. Mm. And it's like, that's very clever. That's very clever, but actually having a conversation with somebody over the two to three to 15 years whilst mm -hmm. they are cognitively uh, you know, disappearing for an AI system which would then be able to stand for who they were whilst engaging with other digital entities or even human entities. Now, that's a challenge. That's a build. And I'm 58 next week, and I'd like to not be doing this for the rest of my life. I really enjoy building in wood. Peter, yeah. and weld and so on. But I think in healthcare, the ability to build a system which is a trusted advisor, advocate, and assistant, which is funded in an ethical way and is discreet and personal to you. I think there's loads of cans of worms in there, isn't there? Where does your data live? Does it live in the chip in your arm? You know, Kevin Warwick style did you envisage in this scenario that an AI would be able to go into that world with your mother and interact with her without judgment and be in the space that she was in, however imaginary? I think I never had the chance to build something that could have worked with my mother to do such. I think that having a system, I always envisioned it, Peter, a bit like a sort of a, an intelligent bush radio if you remember the Bush radios, you know, 1950s, 60s, utilitarian stuff, you know, I mean, they're a look. I actually said this to somebody who was in their 20s recently, and she said, um, I do know what you're talking about, Phil. And I was like, good for you. <laughs> so it would be something where they got information and support 
and it would look normal. And as dementia just totally takes out the ability to put, you know, sense and sensibilities together, if your radio started doing something of value, started playing you tunes which were about Indian subcontinent and allowing you to explore what it would be like to be around Bengal in the 1960s or something, then why shouldn't we? Then why not? I mean, that might very well be a better, more appealing world than the one that you're in at the time. And if you always felt like, hey, let's go on an Indiana Jones style adventure, a golden age of exploration, then why not do it in your own mind if you have no other way of doing it? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Wow, this has been amazing. There is so much more we could cover here. How should people find out more about what you're doing, your businesses, your projects, follow you? What do you want them to know about what's next? Well, I would say I'm easy enough, relatively easy to find on the internet because when it got busy and there was a huge amount of fill halls, Peter, I mean, you're the same, Peter Scott. It's the same as me. I was like, there's so many fill halls. Whereas I used to be on the front page, I needed to put a D in. So Phil D. Hall will find me. LinkedIn's a great place to grab me. I'm Phil D. Hall on Twitter. I don't use Twitter as much as I probably should do. I think if you want to keep on top of what we're doing in healthcare and education, go to the Echoborg website, which is echo, E-C-H-O-B-O-R-G, like cyborg, echoborg.com and register there. And then as the shows appear, you'll be able to see what's probably the most interesting sort of cutting edge space. So those are worthwhile doing. And Elsewhere, which is the home website, and Dorian, I'm busy at the moment building a system with just a couple of other people to help train people to sell drugs effectively, not illegal drugs, I might add legal drugs effectively as part of a sort of learning and development piece. So we'll come back to Dorian. Go and talk to Dorian, maybe. I have. It's been interesting. And what I also think is interesting is how you started this journey with the ZX82 and being hooked on the interactive games and probably things like Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and Adventure and Zork and, and things like that. And a lot of people were. I spent way many hours playing dungeon a game on the vax systems and yet you saw something in that that took you further uh, so that you could do things with it that turned out to be not only unique and interesting but that you could sustain a career through and that i think is just another illustration of the enormous breadth of opportunity and impact of artificial intelligence. Mm. We just continue to explore that space on this show and you've taken us in another fascinating direction, right angles to where all the others. Thank you. You're very welcome. Yeah. That concludes the interview. Just a word of explanation about what Phil called Asimov Foundation Level Science. He's referring to a classic science fiction novel series by Isaac Asimov called The Foundation Trilogy, which later on had more sequels and prequels added to it. The original novels were collections of science fiction pulp short stories and were called Foundation, Foundation and Empire, and Second Foundation. And they were a retelling of the fall of the Roman Empire set in a science fictional universe of a distant future with an empire spanning the galaxy. A central trope was how, unlike in the Roman Empire, 
A highly intelligent man predicted the coming collapse through a science he called psychohistory, which was science applied to the study of people and their behavior en masse, so precisely that it could predict that sort of event. You can imagine how appealing that is to certain logically-minded people like me. If you want to experience some of Phil's conversational AI, visit his sites at echoborg.com and elsewhere.com, where you can talk to Doria. There are links in the show transcript. In today's news, ripped from the headlines about AI, they say you can't teach an old dog new tricks. But now an AI can teach dogs tricks. Colorado State University researchers Jason Stock and Tom Cavey have published a paper called Who's a Good Boy? Thank you, guys. On an AI system that rewards dogs for doing tricks. Their image classifier determines whether a dog is sitting, standing, or lying down. If a dog responds to a command by adopting the correct posture, the AI gives them a treat through an attached device. I think we can classify this as speculative research because the direct applications of such a system aren't obvious, not unless someone wants to make robotic systems for training thousands of dogs at a time, which is terrifying any way you slice it. But they suggest it could lead to systems that can recognize dog emotions, and that could lead to bigger and better things. Maybe we could get a dog translator out of this. This show now has over 17,000 downloads. Thank you, and welcome all you new listeners. We're picking up steam here. Please keep sharing the show and giving us ratings, because that's how more people will find out about us and come here. It's really the only thing that counts. I bet you didn't come here as a result of seeing our billboard in Times Square. There are over two million podcasts, but only a third of them have ten or more episodes. Next week, we'll be at 50. And in that episode, I'll be talking with Ryan Abbott, professor of law and health sciences at the University of Surrey and author of the recent book, The Reasonable Robot, Artificial Intelligence and the Law. We'll be talking about AI and the law, not just autonomous vehicles, but AI as inventors of patents, issues of liability, and even questions about punishing AIs. Bad robot. That's next week on AI and You. Until then, remember, no matter how much computers learn how to do, it's how we come together as humans that matters. That's all for this episode of AI and You. Please leave a rating and comment and share with your friends. Get the book Crisis of Control and see more videos and articles at AIandYou.net. That's A-I-A-N-D-Y-O-U.net, where you can also send us your questions. Thank you for listening.